You're listening to Read Swell, a podcast for people who love to read and talk about books. I'm Meredith Bird. Thank you for joining me for episode six of our analysis of The Handmaid's Tale. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 11 and 12. Last week I recorded all of the episode and prepared it before I realized I'd skipped chapters 11 and 12 and gone straight to 13, 14. So today we'll cover those two, and if you're trying to follow along with the book, then skip to this one first. I'm sorry about that. So one of those things that can happen is you're trying to prepare a podcast in the middle of all sorts of other things in life, like jobs. Which brings me to some news. As you probably know, this podcast is something I do in my spare time, and unfortunately there hasn't been much of it lately. I hope that will be changing soon, but I can't make any promises. So I'll be recording podcasts when I can, and we'll be trying to get onto a regular schedule at some point. As part of making that regular schedule a priority and a reality, I'm launching a Patreon page. Patreon, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is a place for creators and artists to make a living making their art. Subscribers can give a small monthly donation to help keep the project or art going, and with it they get special perks or rewards. I'd like to continue this podcast after we finish this book, and Patreon is one way that I can keep doing what I'm doing, as it would allow me to focus my time and energy on the books I'd like to discuss, and would also help me make more podcasts in a timely manner. It will also allow me to upgrade my equipment and maybe even pay for someone to edit the podcast so you get the best sound quality. I'll be launching the support page on August 1st, but I need some help coming up with rewards and perks for the subscribers. So if you'd like to tell me what kind of reward you'd be interested in, I have a poll on my Twitter page. You can find me by my handle at read underscore swell. You can also email me to tell me your thoughts on Patreon or anything else about the book. My email address is readwriteswell at gmail.com. To check out the Patreon page, you can go to patreon.com forward slash readswell after August 1st. Let's get into the book. Chapter 11 begins with a doctor's visit. We're jumping around in time somewhat, and in the present, in Gilead, Ofred has already gone to the store and on a walk with Uvglen and told us about her past and the people in her life. But in the present, time has moved more slowly as she shifts around her memories. Now, we're technically in present day, but she tells us the doctor's visit was yesterday, so the doctor's visit, too, is a memory. Ofred says, yesterday morning, I went to the doctor. Then she pauses and restates, saying, was taken by a guardian, one of those with the red armbands who are in charge of such things. She clarifies that she didn't just go to the doctor because she has no actual agency in this world. In reality, she was taken. She goes once a month, and they do all the same things they used to do at an OBGYN, but now they're obligatory visits. The doctor's office is in a modern building, and they take the elevator up. I don't want to get too much into the Hulu show on these podcasts, because I want to keep them separate from the book, and also because we'll do a whole episode on them later. But I want to say that sometimes I miss little world-building details, like the fact that this is a modern building. And for some reason, when I was first picturing Gilead, I didn't think about our current modern buildings. I don't know what I did imagine. But this is an example of why watching a visual version, whether it's film or TV, can be so useful. Because the way the show looks visually helps me notice that this is a modern building in a modern world. And that idea of people living like we do right now, not in some backwater place, but acting and believing like the citizens of Gilead, is even more terrifying. It's not a distant, far-off reality. It is a reality built upon the grounds and buildings of our current world. That is a scary thought. 
And it's one of Margaret Atwood's biggest points throughout the course of this novel, that this world of Gilead isn't something that's distant. It's something that can exist in a modern building, is crucial to understanding that this is something that could happen. I also want to point out the people populating this doctor's office. The guardian that escorts her sits outside with the other guardians, and inside are the handmaids and a nurse. The nurse is six feet tall, about 40, male, and is wearing a pistol in his shoulder holster. He has a diagonal scar across one cheek, and his hands are too big for the keyboard. All these details are jarring to us when we think about this nurse versus the ones we're used to. And not only is he very different than what we'd expect, he's actually more of a soldier, built for and prepared for battle than an OBGYN nurse who is supposed to be a nurturing caregiver. If the scar and the big hands didn't tell us this, then the gun and easy access should clue us in. This is not the kind of nurse we're used to seeing. It's just one more reminder of how the world has changed and what these changes mean. In the examining room, there's a screen, red, of course, with a gold eye and twin serpents on a sword. This is old symbolism of the past, Ofred says. I looked into it a little bit because I've seen this imagery before, but I wanted to see if there's anything that I wasn't getting from it. And the serpents on the staff is an old Greek symbol that we still see today associated with medicine. It's an older symbol than the cross used as the red cross. And there are some different stories about it, but this one in particular has snakes on a sword, not just a staff. This makes me wonder if it's supposed to comment on the crusade for Christ that Gilead is on. Or that medicine is also a battle, a part of this war to preserve Gilead by whatever means, including the use of handmaids. We also have the eye, which has already been associated with God, as everyone says, under his eye, or calls the spy's eyes. So we have the eye watching what happens in the examining room. Ofer goes through the routine that seems very normal if you've ever been to a doctor's office like this, except when she lays on the examining table, there's a sheet that hangs at her neck intersecting her so that the doctor will never see her face. He says that he deals with the torso only. Doesn't that remind you of the way that many male politicians and perhaps some doctors already think about women's bodies? Just torso meant to do only one thing, and never mind all that fussy part where she thinks and speaks and has agency. The doctor comes in when she's ready and he is talkative in the way men used to be, Ofred says, but aren't anymore. He calls her honey, and he isn't supposed to talk, but he does. He goes about her examination in a clinical enough way, however. But the way that she describes the examination makes us understand how she feels about the process that she's going through right now. She says her breasts are fingered in their turn, a search for ripeness, rot, as if women's bodies were fruit that could go bad. And then something out of the ordinary happens. He comes closer to the screen and whispers that he could help her. He's helped others. Ofred asks how, and her first thought is to Luke. She thinks the doctor might know something or has seen him or can bring him back. This is an interesting little detail that tells us more about Ofred's priorities and where her thoughts lie. But the doctor means that he can get her pregnant by having sex. He reassures her that the door is locked, no one will come in, and they'll never know it isn't his. He lifts the sheet and she can see his face. And we get a little bit of a detail about what he looks like. He says that most of those old guys, meaning the commanders, can't make it anymore, or they're sterile. 
Ofrid is shocked he said this word. It's a forbidden word now, and officially, there is no such thing as a sterile man anymore. It is only women who are fruitful and women who are barren. That's the law. This comment has me seeing layers of rage. First, I think about historic context. Instances like King Henry VIII, who went through wife after wife, hoping for a boy, and many of his wives had several miscarriages or infants which died, but no blame for any of it was placed on the man. Historically, it was believed that women were to blame for not being able to have children. We have terms like barren wombs, but nothing that is quite as damning for a man other than impotence, I suppose. And even though the story is set in a modern era, this incorrect scientific belief that it is women who are to blame, or women who are fruitful, never the men, is perpetuated because it puts the problem onto women. That makes me think of all the ways women are forced to bear the weight of a problem that is not their fault in our modern times. Things like contraception usually fall to the women. Other than condoms and vasectomies, there aren't really any ways for men to take on this responsibility. In addition, women are often blamed if they are raped, and all too often our government not only doesn't take it seriously, but they claim false information, like the doctor-turned-politician, who said that women don't conceive from rapes because, quote, women's bodies have ways of shutting all that down. These lines about women who are barren or women who are fruitful never any sterile men blows my mind at the audacity of male fragility. The patriarchal system has made it so that men never want to be confronted with anything that might hint that they are not godlike creatures. And so they have outlawed the idea that a man could be sterile. Sterile. Can you imagine? So rather than admit that some men might be constrained by nature, they've decided it must be the women who are wrong. This is one of those reasons that patriarchal systems affect not only the women, and of course they are mostly the ones who are affected, but it also affects the men too. And we can go more in depth on that, about why any system like this is a negative, dangerous thing. But this is one example that it creates men who are too fragile to recognize and acknowledge things about them that are human. I want you to imagine for a second, if you will, what would happen if women as a collective all decided there's no such thing as an infertile woman? All women are fertile, and if men don't get them pregnant, it's the man's fault. That's the law. What kind of uproar would that cause? And yet, we don't have that uproar here, because for centuries and generations, women have been conditioned to accept the blame. It has now become an internalized belief that they are somehow at fault if they can't conceive or do any of these other things they've been told they aren't allowed to do or can't do. That's why Serena Joy's character, even if she seems sympathetic at times, will always be one of the worst and most tragic villains to me. She's symbolic of the actions that got the women of Gilead. She is symbolic of the actions that got the women of Gilead here. And now she's getting her just rewards. But women like Ofred and Ofglen are getting the harsher punishments because of her. And of course, because she has power through her husband and through their wealth. There is no sympathy for complicity. Back to the story, the doctor, back to the story. The doctor tries to convince Ofred using persuasion like, you want a baby, don't you? Ofred says yes, because of that quote from Rachel at the beginning. 
give me children or else I die. And she says, there's more to one meaning to it. Ofrid hesitates, aware of the risks and benefits both to himself and to her, both to him and to herself. The doctor says, quote, I hate to see what they put you through. And she sees, quote, genuine sympathy. And yet she acknowledged, oh, and she sees, quote, genuine sympathy. And yet he's a, enjoying this. And she sees, quote, genuine sympathy. And yet he's enjoying this sympathy and all. She sees that his eyes are moist with compassion. His eyes, she says, are moist with compassion, but his hands are moving on her with impatience. She tells him that it's too risky, even though she knows it would be next to impossible for them to be caught. He tells her to think about it because she doesn't have much time left. He tells her to think about it because she doesn't have much time left, according to her chart. She says thank you, but must do it in a way. She says thank you, but says that she must. Uh, she says thank you, but we see that she must do it in a way that shows she's not upset with him because he has control over her life. He could fake the test and have her sent to the colonies with the unwomen. He doesn't say any of this, but Ofred, quote, feels the knowledge of his power, but Ofred feels, quote, the knowledge of his power hanging nevertheless in the air. When I was younger, I focused on the threat of getting discovered as Ofred's reasoning for not choosing this offer. Now, however, I see it differently. I see a man who thinks he's being kind and sympathetic and compassionate to these women in trouble but he is actually getting some sexual turn-on by his own sympathy. But he's actually getting some sexual turn-on by his own sympathy. He's your classic feminist fuckboy, a guy who acts like an ally and acts righteously angry about patriarchy, but still enjoys those benefits of patriarchy just a little too much to actually give them up in any way. The doctor says he hates what's done to the handmaids, and yet we don't see him doing much about it other than offering to have sex with them. Sure, it might help them get pregnant and save them, but do we think that's really why he's offering? If he really hated what was hap if he really hated what was happening, then why is he working in this nice modern building for Gilead? At the end of this chapter, Ofred is getting dressed again, and her hands are shaking, and her hands are shaking. She asks, Why am I frightened? I've crossed no boundaries, I've given no trust, taken no risk. All is safe. It's the choice that terrifies me. A way out. I wonder what exactly she means when she says it's the choice that terrifies her. Is it that having a choice is frightening? Or having the cage door suddenly propped open? Something else? What would you do? What would you do, given Ofred's option? Chapter 12 begins with a description of the bathroom which, like the doctor's office, feels comfortably normal, except where it's not. It's papered in forget-me-nots, which, right there, is an important little detail. It has a blue, quote, fake fur cover on the toilet seat, and only needs the, quote, doll whose skirt conceals the extra roll of toilet paper to fool someone into thinking it was the past. To fool someone into thinking it was the past. Except there is no mirror, only an oblong of ten. There are no razors, and the door has no lock. Cora sits outside in the hall to make sure Ofred has privacy, and maybe also to prevent Ofred from drowning herself. 
Aunt Lydia says that in a bathroom, in a bathtub, you are vulnerable, but she didn't say to what. Ofrid acknowledges that the bath is a requirement of the ceremony, which we'll learn more about later, but it is also a luxury. Feeling her own hair again is a luxury, but her own nakedness is strange to her already. She says, my body seems outdated. Did I really wear bathing suits at the beach? Now she has Aunt Lydia's words playing in her head that wearing those bathing suits, not caring that parts of her body were on display, was shameful and modest. But what she says next is even more complicated and fascinating to me. Ofred says she avoids looking down at her body, not so much because it's shameful or immodest, but because she doesn't want to see it. She doesn't want to look at something that determines her so completely. It seems as though she's saying she doesn't want to look down and see her female body because it is that body and nothing else, not her intelligence, her personality, her history, or her abilities, that determines her fate so fully and so overwhelmingly. It seems to be an expression of the self-loathing that many people feel about their bodies when aspects of their bodies do not fit in with the accepted or the powerful. We see this theme throughout as well, the idea of hating or restricting a body because it is not the one that is accepted by the power system in place. We also get a detail about hair that is kept long but covered unless it's shaved, which is another example of both controlling women's bodies, but also shaming them for the fact that they are women. Long hair is supposed to be feminine, which in these strict gender roles is important, but because it's women, it's also something to shame. Ofred climbs into the water and lets it hold her. She says the water is soft as hands. This act is a transitional boundary of sorts that allows memories to flood, pun intended, back to her. Ofred says she closes her eyes and she's there with me, suddenly, without warning. It must be the smell of the soap. I put my face against the soft hair at the back of her neck and breathe her in. Baby powder and child's washed flesh and shampoo. Ofred says this is the age she is when I'm in the bath. She comes back to me at different ages. This is how I know she's not really a ghost. If she were a ghost, she would be the same age always. Then Ofred recounts a day at the grocery store when her daughter was almost kidnapped by a woman who kept saying it was her baby, the Lord had given it to her, he'd sent her a sign. Ofred had thought it was an isolated incident at the time, but now it feels more like a harbinger, we can assume. Back in the present, her daughter fades, and Ofred says... Maybe I do think of her as a ghost, the ghost of a dead girl, a little girl who died when she was five. She recalls all the pictures and mementos she used to have and wonders what happened to them. She says she's learned to do without a lot of things. Aunt Lydia says that too many things make you forget about spiritual values and keep you attached to the material world. She quotes the Bible saying, Blessed are the meek but doesn't add the latter part which goes on to say, for they shall inherit the earth. Ofred comments on that omission for us to remind us that this poverty of spirit that Aunt Lydia is urging them to cultivate is a form of controlling the women, but without any type of a reward except when they die. I'd also like to piece apart that syntax. Is it just me, or does poverty of spirit sound like Aunt Lydia is encouraging these women to have an absence of spirit or a lack of life or a lack of kindness? On the one hand, I don't doubt that this is what she's trying to encourage, but I hardly think she'd express it so literally. But then again, I just think the syntax is odd. I don't necessarily think this is what Aunt Lydia is meaning to say. 
I would like to point out that this examination of the difference of the spiritual values and material worlds is taking place while Ofrid is fully immersed in the luxury of a material bath, and she's naked. This juxtaposition seems significant because if we break down the differences between the material world and the spiritual one, we see that aligned with the material is things like one's corporal body and the necessities of keeping it alive, but also the pleasures that come with having a body. Pleasures that this world has been trying to stamp out for as long as we've understood that sometimes people use their bodies to achieve happiness in some form or another, and that sometimes people like to control how they use their bodies as a way of controlling the people themselves. On the spiritual side, we have the mind and we have the faith in an unseen thing that urges us to eschew the material world and focus on the spiritual one so that we can get to some unknowable future pleasure. We have the body versus the mind, Ofred's nakedness and Ofred's memories. The material world, all the things that Ofred recalls or once had that ties her to her daughter and Luke in a world that's now gone. Versus this new world that is supposed to be all about spiritual rewards and values, but seems to care a lot about denying the physical world around them and the pleasures that can be found in it. Can you tell that I'm an Epicurean at heart, and not just because I love food, but because I seem to gravitate towards Epicurus's philosophies about pleasure and pain and a happy life? Over thinks about her daughter, who we learned did not die, but was taken from her. She wonders if her daughter still remembers her. She thinks they must have told her daughter that her mother was dead because they believe it would make it easier for her daughter to adjust to the new world. We learn that she's eight now, so we know that Ofred has been a handmaid for three years. She says they were right. It's easier to think of her as dead. I don't have to hope then or make a wasted, or make a wasted effort. Cora interrupts her thoughts to remind her to hurry up, and Ofred thinks I must not deprive her of her time. She washes using a pumice stone to sand off dead skin, saying such Puritan aids are supplied, and that she wishes to be totally clean, germless, without bacteria, like the surface of the moon, because she won't be able to wash herself after the ceremony. Here we get a hint about how she feels about the ceremony and why she might want to wash herself. Now, as she's washing herself, she can't avoid seeing the small tattoo on her ankle, four digits in an eye. She calls it a passport in reverse. It's supposed to guarantee that she will never be able to fade, finally, into another landscape. She is too important, too scarce for that. She is a national resource. She can't be lost, it seems, but neither can she escape, thanks to the tattoo. Is this what determines her so completely that she wanted to avoid looking at before? It's perfectly possible, and yet, because of Atwood's syntax, we believe she means her body. Not that she couldn't be speaking about both, I just find these little ways that Atwood subverts the original interpretation and makes us think that she's saying one thing when she's also saying multiple things, really fascinating. In chapters 13 and 14, we will see more discussion of national resources. We will also see there's more connections to the Holocaust in addition to this little identifying tattoo. Those details are, I think, supposed to be echoes for us. Part of it is world building, so we can see how Gilead handles things. It's supposed to align them with the ruthless efficiency of the Nazis, as well as with their fervent, repugnant beliefs. I think you could argue that Gilead and Ofred's fate, as it relates to their ideological dystopia, could be drawn from aspects of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust specifically. But Atwood isn't trying to tell that story. 
Instead, she's using these details to create a heightened sense of fear and anxiety based on what we know went on in those places at that time, in addition to the world building. Because really, can't you see the leaders of Gilead looking around for some way to organize this new society and using Nazi Germany as a frame onto which they can create this other world? To reinforce this, as Ofred is dressing, she mentions that she won't wear the headdress this evening, but she does put on the red veil because her hair has not been shaved. She thinks, where did I see that film about the women kneeling in the town square, their hair falling in clumps? What had they done? Perhaps, like me, you see this as the women who are accused of being Nazi collaborators after the war was over. Women who took Nazi soldiers as lovers and were then shamed by having their hair shaved off. What had they done, Ofred asks. They collaborated with the enemy, just like Serena Joy and all the other women who bought into the patriarchal system so they could have a little bit of control as well. Now we're out of the bathroom and back in Ofred's bedroom, and Cora brings her dinner, knocking before entering. Ofred likes that because it means that she thinks Ofred has some of what we used to call privacy left. Here we can see two instances of how other women seem to treat Ofred because she is a handmaid. And that relates back to this undercurrent of shame that goes along with the praise they are given for being handmaids. Yes, on the surface in Gilead, they are praised as national resources, but underneath it, they are treated with either disrespect or a little bit of fear or shame. And when Ofred smiles and thanks her, Cora smiles but then turns away without answering because she's shy of Ofred when they're alone together. Rita's treatment, however, is more angry. She either overcooks or undercooks the chicken as a way of making her resentments felt. Ofred describes the basic healthy but unappetizing food she has for dinner and thinks of the people doing without. She says, this is the heartland here. I'm leading a pampered life. May the Lord make us truly grateful, said Aunt Lydia. It's interesting that although Ofred thinks of those doing without and does seem to be grateful not to be one of them, she lets Aunt Lydia be the one who connects it to God, distancing herself from even a hint of religious gratitude, almost as a way of protesting what she must play act all the rest of the time. We also learn that her food intake is monitored, and she's afraid that if she doesn't eat it, Cora might report her. Downstairs, she imagines the dinner very differently, luxurious but also lonely. She wonders how Serena Joy gets herself noticed. Ofred saves the pat of butter to use as a moisturizer later, and then waits, composing herself. She says, myself is a thing I must compose now as one composes a speech. What I must present is a thing made, not something born. Why? What is the difference between a thing made and a born thing? I have ideas, but I'd like to hear yours. And we're going to stop right there at the end of chapter 11. We'll get back to our regularly scheduled chapters for next time, chapters 15 and 16. Thank you very much for joining me as I examine chapters 11 and 12. If you'd like to share your thoughts, you can email me, readwriteswell at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at read underscore swell. Please rate this podcast on iTunes or leave a review because it helps more people find the podcast and keeps it going. You can also help the podcast out by becoming a subscriber on iTunes or a Patreon on our Patreon page, which will be launching on August 1st. There you can donate to support new episodes and continue the show and find out about the reward levels for your contributions. Thanks and have a great day.
You've been listening to Read Swell, a Word Swell Workshops production owned by Meredith Bird. Music by Ian McCoy. Excerpts of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale are used for purposes of commentary or criticism. Read Swell is a Creative Commons podcast. For questions or use of podcast episode, contact readwriteswell at gmail.com.